short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to Cold War 48, getting towards the end of Yalta, edging our way closer. Hey, Ray. Right. Hey, how's it going? It's going good, Ray. Good, good. So we're still talking about this dinner, uh, right. loosely, um, at the end of day four. Uh, apparently at this dinner, Stalin came as close as ever to apologizing for his alliance with Hitler in 1939. Right. He told Churchill that if the British and French had sent a mission to Moscow in 1939 containing men who really wanted agreement with Russia, the Soviet government would not have signed pact with Ribbentrop. Now that's true. That's absolutely true. Those men did not have the authority to sign anything. They were told to stall. They were told to make it look like something would be signed for the very reason to make sure that Stalin did not sign anything with Hitler. So, and again, like we've said this a billion times before, he had spies. He knew that that their mission was insincere. Uh, They came on boats and trains when they could have flew. It was a bunch of BS. It was a bunch of propaganda. But at least he's being honest. Like, if you really wanted to sign with me, I would have done it. But you didn't, so I had to save myself. And that's that's a rare moment of honesty, I think, for Stalin. Yeah. By the way, I uh, in reading Molotov's memoirs uh, this week, uh, fascinated by the fact that um, he wasn't happy about the fact that his name forever would be associated oh, with an agreement yeah. with the Nazis. <laughs> the two things that Molotov is remembered for, a pact with the Nazis... And uh, a handmade bomb, a Molotov cocktail that was used against the Russians uh, right. by the Finnish uh, army. So, uh, yeah, he's like, you know, this, this is not how I wanted to go down in history. This is what I want my name when associated re- with. <laughs> he probably said, when I retire, I'm going to have to change my name because I, I can't live with this. And Stalin's probably going, uh, don't worry about retiring. I've got that all taken care of. Yeah, in fact, like uh, when Stalin died in 1953, it looked like Molotov was about to be executed before that. It was sort of (laughs) Stalin's death uh, got Molotov off the hook. But then then he was worried about Berea. And anyway, you know, then they had to get rid of Berea. But he nearly didn't make it all the way through, old Molotov. Anywho... Um, now, American accounts of this dinner suggest that Stalin was the first that night to speak of the dangers awaiting their alliance. He said, 
It is not so difficult to keep unity in time of war, since there is joint aim to defeat common enemy, which is clear to everyone. The difficult task will come after the war, when diverse interests tend to divide allies. Mm. But Patti said he was confident that present alliance would meet this test. It is our duty to see that it would that our relations in peacetime will be as strong as they have been in the war. I thought it was utterly brilliant of him to bring it up first. You know, the uh, the uh, big elephant in the room for him, for him to go, yes, yes, we're doing fine now because we're still fighting Germany. But what's going to happen later? I'm concerned. We really need to be able to work together. I, I just thought it was a very good opening move on his part to be the first one to bring it up. And he probably had that planned the entire time. Yeah, but I think, as we've said before in the past, I think he was sincere about that, if for purely selfish reasons. He said in private, according to the records, that um, he believed the Soviet Union would need 20 years to recover from the war. Right. Uh, and so he needed he, he, could, he needed a peace. He needed stability, uh, particularly with the Americans and the British coming out of the war. Now, as we know, the Soviet Union didn't get that, but that was his plan. So even if for purely selfish reasons, he may have had plans to you know for the Soviet Union to do something else after that twenty years when they were back on their feet. But considering he was right. in his seventies at this stage, uh, how old was he? Seventy. Give or take, more or less, Yalta? Mm-hmm. Somewhere around there, yeah. Unlikely that he's still going to be kicking around at 90. So uh, <laughs> well, his plan was to, for the rest of his life to have peace with the United States and the UK, even if it was for purely selfish reasons. All right. If if we could jump back for a second, I meant to say this at the end of the last episode, but we ran over. So Stalin gives his big speech to, about Churchill. Churchill reciprocates because you know Stal- uh, Churchill is not going to let anybody make an elegant speech and then not have him come back in kind. So uh, they both give their speeches, and you get the sense that uh, Churchill has come, like you said, to trust Stalin as much as he could. But Churchill also felt that the um, the Kremlin hardliners... Um, were against this alliance. Maybe they wanted to ruin it. And I just have a little trouble with that that um, idea that Churchill is that naive. Because if you take the Kremlin and you put everybody on one side of a big room and Stalin on the other side of the room, it's still not a contest. He rules everything. He can have anybody shot. He can have anybody arrested. He controls all the men with the guns. I just, I, I don't I'm probably reading too much into it, but I'm still trying to just get over what I think is Churchill being somewhat naive, thinking that Stalin is somehow there keeping other more radical extreme forces within the Kremlin from destroying what they're trying to build at Yalta. Well, no, I think Churchill's view, my reading of it is that there were hard, there there were harder nosed, ideological camps inside of the Politburo had been Mm -hmm. and probably still were people that would have refused to do deals of any kind with the Mm. capitalist imperialists. Certainly after their winning. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. But Stalin uh, was willing to relax his ideology, as we've seen before. You know, he wasn't that hardcore. Uh, with either the ideology of no dealings with the, the capitalists or even just in terms of international communism, he was willing to take a break from that while they, you know... Uh, uh, solidified uh, their own economy, their own gains, you know, communism and socialism in one country, that kind of stuff. So I think I, I think Churchill's right in that in Stalin, they've got somebody who cares more about success and victory and winning than he does sticking to an ideology. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay, hardcore Bolsheviks. Okay, I can see that. I can yeah. see that. Yeah, he's a he's a pragmatist, Stalin. Real. Yeah, I mean, politic. why defeat why defeat one enemy when you could potentially piss off two more? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. He's trying to, like you said, just a couple minutes ago, nail down peace for the next twenty years. Let my ch- country have some breathing room and a chance to rebuild what has been destroyed, which is the European half of their country. Churchill said after Stalin gave his talk about you know, the peace between them after the war. He said, I must say that never in this war have I felt the responsibility weigh so heavily on me, even in the darkest hours, as now during this conference. But now, for the reasons which the marshal has given, we see that we are on the crest of the hill, and there is before us the prospect of open country." Do not let us underestimate the difficulties. Nations, comrades in arms, have in the past drifted apart within five or ten years of war. Thus toiling millions have followed a vicious circle, falling into the pit, and then by their sacrifices, raising themselves up again. We now have a chance of avoiding the errors of previous generations, and of making Assure peace. People cry out for peace and joy. Will the families be reunited? Will the warrior come home? Will the shattered dwelling be rebuilt? Will the toiler see his home? It was almost a wrap at the end. That was pretty good. According to Charles Bolin, who was the American note-taker at the dinner, mm-hmm. and FDR's interpreter, Churchill continued that in the modern world, the function of leadership... I shake my head from side to side so much when I'm doing Churchill that it's you know, <laughs> know. nearly falling off. I wish this was on video. In the modern world, you have to shake your head when you do Churchill. Or just <laughs> to something get, to that, get the wobble. Get the wobble. <laughs> <laughs> the wobble with the voice. In the modern world, the function of leadership was to lead the people out of the forests into the broad, sunlit plains of peace and happiness. According to Boland, he felt this prize was nearer in their grasp than any time before in history, and it would be a tragedy for which history would never forgive them if they let this prize slip from their grasp through inertia or carelessness. So let's just stop right there and ask, how has America judged 
Yalta, how has America judged FDR and Churchill? Because it, for different reasons, which we'll go into later, it did slip. We did have the Cold War, so it slipped to a degree. So, because I know that I know that um, during the Cold War, Yalta was seen there. Yalta was painted in a very negative light for many, many years. The only redeeming virtue was that there was not, in fact, the dreaded nuclear war or the atomic war that everyone feared. So. I would say that they did let it slip, and, and Churchill was right, because it was looked down upon for many, many decades after after Yalta. Yeah, but I don't think FDR or Pooh Bear get the blame for that. Uh, in the West, it's all blamed on Stalin. Yeah, that's true. Uh, where, you know, whereas, it, as, as we're trying to explain in ridiculous amount of detail here, <laughs> there's, enough, there's enough blame to be spread equally around. Oh, absolutely. There's enough, yeah, to shovel around. But yes, I mean, he's right. We have, we cannot screw this up. It's just the latest in a series of wars. The the fact that they're hoping there aren't, uh, I don't know, it seems like they're happy, they're, they're hoping that there's no other wars is kind of naive to me. But yeah, he, I mean, he's absolutely right. He's trying to almost guilt them into so, somehow working this out because, yeah, the history books will not forgive us if we fuck this up. This is our moment. We have to make it happen. And by history books, he meant Ray and Cam. Ray and Cam won't what? forgive us if we fuck this up. They will drag us with a cold. Now, Stalin probably at this stage is still worried that these two countries after the war may turn against the Soviet Union because they're both capitalist countries and fundamentally he mistrusts the capitalists. Uh, or distrusts, is the word I should have used. They distrust the capitalists. And, and they're going to take Germany with them. And they might do a separate deal with Germany and turn against him, which yeah. is, in fact, what kind of happened, as we'll see. So he was kind of right. Mm-hmm. Um, his fears were justified. Now, again, we, there's plenty of blame to go around here, so it's not all this way or that way, but... His fear that the capitalist countries would turn on the socialists after the war was actually fairly spot on, as we'll see as we go ahead. Um, But during this dinner, even though he gave a toast, Salon, this is, gave a toast to Roosevelt, Roosevelt didn't say much. Right. The suggestion in the history books is that um, he may have been feeling a little guilty about how much of China he gave away without talking to Chiang Kai-shek about it. But he did say that the atmosphere at the dinner was that of a family and he called upon his counterparts to work together in order to give every man, woman and child of this earth... (laughs) Their fucking voices. To give every... (laughs) It's a montage. It's a mixture. My my voice. I've got to listen to more... uh, yeah. Or, uh, FDR the only recordings. thing we have to fear, like that. Oh, very good. Give every man, woman, and child on this earth the possibility of security and well-being. It's getting a bit That's close nice. to Kennedy there. Park the car <laughs> in the car park. Uh, pack, pack, pack the can, pack, pack. <laughs> it's hour three, by the way. <laughs> so the. The next morning after this dinner. 
Wait, Frankie, hold on. B- before we before we do that, I just want to mention something oh. uh, real quick. Uh, mm-hmm. And because we said said this before, you know, Stalin, Stalin, like you said, desperately needs a breathing space to to recover his country, that kind of stuff. And if if the price that he has to pay to do this is to go along with FDR and this whole United Nations thing, now that he has the right to veto, it's a price that he is willing to pay. If it holds the alliance together, it gives him the breathing space. It might not be a perfect solution, but he is actually willing to do that. And so, again, he, like you said, he's being, he's being practical. He's being pragmatic. That's the price he has to pay. He's got it down. And so he is ready to move forward because he has gotten a lot of what he wants, and he is giving FDR what he clearly wants and what he knows he wants because of the spying, and that is the United Nations. So Stalin is paying a price, too. It's just that he's okay with it. FDR is not. Yeah, I mean, what's the price do you think he's paying with regards to the United Nations? Well, I mean, you're just you're joining a league where I mean, this is Stalin. This is fucking Stalin who controls everything in that country. I mean, like we said earlier, the most the most that really concerns him is um, Barry raping his daughter. But I mean, this guy can have anybody shot. He can have anybody removed. He has set out from a 15 year old kid or whatever, maybe even maybe a little older to to rise to power, to not be able to be hurt or challenged by anyone. And suddenly the country that he has built up is now going to be a part of an organization where the most that he can do is veto a vote. I mean, that's got to be disconcerting for someone who's just used to absolute power like he is. And so it's the great unknown and no dictator worthy of that name enjoys the great unknown. Uh, if you say so. Um, yeah. I, I, I don't think the UN, I think the way that they've already sort of hobbled it at this stage, it's, it's, yeah. does, it's, it's really not much of a price to pay. They've got a veto, nothing can be done, so it's... it's right, but it's still a headache. As as he's concerned. It, no, you're absolutely right, but it's still a headache. It's still something that he has to deal with that there are other people involved who have a say so. He, he just can't be really happy about that. All right. So the next day, next morning, Frank calls Big Steady uh, in <laughs> and says he's decided that they're going to soften the American position on the two most contested issues the right. setting up of a new Polish government and. Mm. German reparations. So all that battling going back and forth around and around. And and did, did I can't remember. I don't think you did because like I said, it's hour three. You didn't read out. I don't think you read out Stalin's quote that really gave FDR what, 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 what soothed FDR during that dinner where he said, I propose a toast for the successful conclusion of Dunbarton Oaks and that our alliance, born under the stress of battle, may be solid and extended after the war. So he's pretty much saying to, to FDR, yes, to pretty much, you know, everything you want. I am here in spirit to, to support you. And now FDR, maybe he's hung over, maybe he's a little emotional. But like you just said, he seems to be giving up on the other two big questions of Yalta and of what Stalin wanted. Mm. Well, I think he's... You know, he, do, he doesn't want to risk the big things that he wanted, which was right. mainly 
the Soviet entry into the war with Japan, which he's got, and the United Nations, mm-hmm. which he's got. These are mm-hmm. these are the things that are going to be his legacy. Um, he's prepared to give up some slack to Stalin yeah. um, in order to keep those safe. And now the time has come <clears throat> on the morning of February 9th to pose for family pictures. Ah, The famous photos of the Yalta Conference taken uh, that morning with Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin and their advisors and military commanders in the background. Churchill smoking his ever-present cigar, Roosevelt having a cigarette. Stalin doesn't have his pipe out. Uh, maybe he thought right. it was too cold to bother lighting a pipe. I feel that sometimes with when I go to Utah in the middle yeah. of winter. Yeah. Uh, I try and light a cigar outside. My hands are turning blue. I'm like, yeah. really? Yeah. Why am I even doing this? This isn't even... <laughs> I'm not even enjoying this. And, and he might accidentally light his uh, mustache on fire. And if he does that, he's going to have to tell the truth until it can grow back. No dictator can, can deal with that. Now, there are two <clears throat> sets of photographs taken here. The American photographs and the Soviet photographs. Mm. And the stories about these, and I have both up on my wall. I, I mean, I love looking at my photos of these three while we're doing the show. Uh, because they look happy and relaxed, much more so than they did at Tehran. You look at the Tehran photos, which I also have up here, and it's very formal. Here, right. they look more like friends. There, they look uh, like they're, they're for, you know men that have been brought together, forced to, to forced <laughs> into you know an alliance. By right. Yalta, they're looking by the towards the end of the Yalta conference. Anyway, they're looking much more friendly, chatty, lots of smiles on faces. <clears throat> Now, the American photos were taken by Robert Hopkins, Harry Hopkins, 23-year-old son. Hmm. Is he a professional photographer? Does he know what the fuck he's doing? He was a bit of a professional photographer at this stage, yeah. Um, Okay. He later wrote that, as I was taking a picture of Stalin and Molotov under the arcade, Stalin motioned me to approach. He smiled and shook my hand and asked me what I'd been doing since we last met. I want to be the first American photographer in Berlin, but this seems unlikely since your troops are on the outskirts of the city and we're 125 miles away, he said. (laughs) How would you like to be attached to Red Army? Stalin asked. Oh, shit. Then you could be first American to film the fall of Berlin. (laughs) And Hopkins wrote in his memoirs later on that he said, Really? You could arrange that? Forgetting forgetting for a moment who he was talking to. I could do anything. Stalin said, you take care of it from your end, I take care of it from our end. <laughs> and when Stalin takes care of it, he just goes, and it's yeah. done. So, like, and we know, because we talked about this before, that um, Stalin had a lot of affection for Harry Hopkins and vice versa. Harry and mm. Stalin had uh, enjoyed their meetings uh, very early on. <clears throat> like, this is going way back to sort of, uh, I think, sort of 41. Right. Um, so, and maybe even going back earlier, I think when um, Roosevelt became president, I think he sent Harry Hopkins over there to meet with Stalin quite early on. Um. Now, in 1943, uh, Bobby Hopkins had actually photographed Roosevelt and Churchill during their very first meeting at the Casablanca Conference. He was the only photographer 
allowed wow. to take photographs of that session. So yeah, he so he had kind of not a professional photog, but he had been photographing these guys uh, yeah. for a couple of years at this stage. Later on, by the way, he became a career CIA officer. Died in his mid-80s. He was also a huge AIDS activist after his son, who was uh, homosexual, died of the disease. Um, he was a, So wow. Bob became very high-profile um, activist early on in, you know, when, when AIDS wasn't very well understood and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people weren't really fighting for it. He came out because he had some sort of profile bearing the uh, son of Harry Hopkins. Uh, also worked a bit of a screenwriter in Hollywood for a bit before he became a CIA officer. Wow, that's a heck of a life. Yeah. The lives of all of these people, man. Like, what what happened to them after Yalta? Like, particularly the kids of the principals. Uh, right. Fascinating. They all went on to lead such like, amazing sort of aristocratic <laughs> lives yeah. in a lot of cases and did so many things. Imagine having been at Yalta. Like he, I think he died in the, the 90s or early 2000s, Robert Hopkins. Imagine, mm-hmm. you know, like, that dinner party story. Yeah, yeah, like, uh, so, hey, Bob, uh, <laughs> what's your Tell story? Tell us about Yalta. You ever, seen, yeah. you, ever, you ever seen that photo of Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill? Yeah, 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 yeah I took yeah. that photo. Like, fuck yeah. off. I'm, I'm badass, man. I took that, one of the most famous photos in history. Yeah, I took that photo. Damn. Um, now, the, the other photographer there was the Soviet photographer, Samari Gurari. You want to mm. tell his story? Uh, no. Um, hold on. All right there. Okay, you're going to have to edit this part out. Okay? I got to tell right. you something. Right. I could have swore, according to your email... It said stop after FDR said, let's let's ease up on Poland and the German reparations. That's what I thought your email meant. Right, Does that makes sense. What I'm what I'm saying. So right. I apologize. I don't I don't have this. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, I can wing it, but I'm is, but I mean, I'll go back and look at your email. I'm pretty sure it said stop there, but this maybe is, I misread well, it. No. It's- I think he. I think he did. Yeah, yeah. I apologize. That's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, I came prepared. So, Samari Gurari was the Soviet photographer. He was a captain in the Red Army. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, in his excitement during the photo session, he opened his camera without rolling back the film. Ooh. Now, to the kids out there who don't know what film. <laughs> was it was stuff you put inside of a camera to take photographs on but if you opened the back of the camera without rolling the film manually you had like this little wheel right. on the camera you after you a roll of film had a certain number of negatives on there like 10 or 20 negatives you and and it was like on a spool and and it that went across the spool if you didn't roll the film back into the little canister that it was in before you opened the back, you would expose the negatives to light and ruin all of the photographs. He opened it without rolling it back. 
He immediately realized what he did, closed the camera, but was convinced that it was too late. He would have ruined his uh, photograph that he was responsible for taking of the big three and that it was probably the end of his life. He was uh, 29 years old at the time, a professional photojournalist for the uh, Soviet newspaper Izvestia, and also, as I said, a Red Army captain. Mm -hmm. He later wrote, during the 10 minutes that it took to develop the film, my life hung by a thread. (laughs) Stalin personally examined the photographs and decided where each one was to be sent. Why are you so pale, Samari? asked the guard. <laughs> I shit myself. I answered that I was tired, thinking all the while what would become of me if the film had been exposed. Oh Before the start of the photo session, Andrei Vyshinsky had warned him, Be careful, Samari. You are the only one from the Soviet press. Oh Luckily, God. the shot <laughs> of the big three that he took was not exposed. The film was ruined, but it started two frames later. So his life hung in the balance of getting this shot. Um, His photo even made it into the uh, main Soviet newspaper, Pravda. So, uh, and that's one of the photos that you will uh, see. If you look at the photos from Yalta, his is one of the, the two main ones you'll come across. Uh, he went on to make do a lot of other great photographs uh, mm-hmm. of the war um, and all that kind of stuff. So, renowned now, there's lots of exhibitions of his work that still happen. Samari nice. Gurari, check him out. So anyway, the well, photo I, session lasted just, half an hour. I'm sorry, I just want to throw, and I apologize, I didn't mean to cut you off that because that's rude. Um, Ollie, Considering Ollie, you don't even have any notes here, Ray, I mean, I'm astounded that you're going to try and interrupt me. No, but no, no, please continue. <laughs> All Stalin would have to do is call up Churchill and FDR, hopefully FDR is not dead yet, and just say, look, I'm looking at the films, it was ruined, could you please both fly back, bring, wear the same clothes, uh, meet me at the palace, and just take the photo over again. Really sorry that to harass you, but I really need this for my scrapbook. I think they could have, I think they could have done that for him. That's all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So then comes the hardest fought session of the entire Yalta conference. It starts with the question of the Polish government moving forwards. Now, earlier that day, as I mentioned before, um, Roosevelt had said to Statinius, listen, let's ease up and give the Soviets what they want. And then they'd had, as they did each day, the foreign ministers meeting mm-hmm. where Statinius had announced that the Americans were prepared to give up on their former insistence that there should be a new Polish government made up of equal representation of the Lublin, the Warsaw Mm -hmm. Poles, and the ones that are in exile in London. Um, They were happy to accept the Soviet model of free, with air quote, elections. (laughs) Right. Did they? Did the Americans give the British a heads up that no. they were caving? Okay. No, they didn't. Um, now, the British were obviously in shock. And in fact, I don't think Churchill had really got much of a heads up before the plenary session that afternoon because 
as was customary, the uh, foreign ministers would give their report and then they were before the start of the plenary session on what the foreign ministers had talked about and agreed upon. Steady briefly announced this decision when he's giving his report at the beginning of the plenary session and just tries to breeze through it and move on. Uh, item number three, yes, we decided to uh, give the Soviets what they want on Poland. Item number five. <laughs> whoa, Apparently, whoa, 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 yeah. Yeah, Pooh was like, whoa, just <laughs> wait, wait, wait a fucking second here. What? I don't think I heard you. Yeah, yeah. You hear me? Rawls is giving you up. The fuck did I do? You can't shut your mouth. <laughs> what we've got here is failure to communicate. I got more here. <laughs> Communication is so important. <laughs> What's the other one I wanted? Um, uh, maybe I don't know. Anyway, so yeah, so Churchill wants to debate this in the session. Um, <clears throat> Roosevelt suggested they take a half hour to study the new proposal. Um, but Churchill wasn't even taking that. He shot back to FDR. I mean, more than that, I do not feel that we should hurry away from the Crimea, leaving these vital problems unresolved or reach hasty decisions. These are among the most important days that any of us shall live. Of course, you could all go away and leave me in this delightful spot. But I do urge that we stay a little bit longer to conclude our discussions satisfactorily. Like, you can all fuck off, but I'm not leaving until we sort this out. (laughs) And there was crickets. Neither Frank and Joe said nothing. They just sort of looked at their feet, shuffled them a little bit. Awkward. Yeah. Now, Churchill goes back to this idea of having Western ambassadors there to observe the elections to make sure that they're free. (laughs) Sorry. He says he would like Marshal Stalin, with his patience and kindness, to consider the difficulty of the British position. The British government does not know what is going on inside Poland, except through dropping brave men by parachute and bringing members of the underground movement out, we have no other means of knowing and do not like getting information in this way. Yeah. Now, he assured Stalin that he would raise no objections to the Soviets observing elections in other parts of Europe and said he would personally welcome observers of the three powers in any area where they wanted to observe the elections. Now, of course, Stalin doesn't give a fuck about (laughs) free elections anywhere. He he does not care about free elections. Um, All he cares about is making sure that he has a friendly government in Poland. He doesn't give a shit about anything. But um, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, Churchill, (laughs) this this blew my mind. Churchill uh, brings up 
Egypt in this conversation. Mm-hmm. He brings up the fact that, in his words, in Egypt, whatever government conducts the election wins. Oh, snap. Basically saying, look, the government in Egypt is corrupt and uh, we don't want that to happen in Poland. We want to make sure that it's free. Now, Stalin retorts and says uh, he doesn't believe much in Egyptian elections. It's all rotten corruption there. They buy each other. Anyway, says Churchill, we seek this formula. What percentage of the people read and write in Egypt? Stalin asked him. In Poland, 70% can read and write. I do not know the Egyptian percentage, but I meant no comparison with Poland. I only wanted fair elections. Look, can we fucking move on here? I'm sorry I brought it up. (laughs) Now, the reason I, I was stunned by this is because as people who listen to our Bullshit Filter show will know, at this time in 1945... Egypt was being fucking run by the British and had been for 70-odd years. Yeah. If they can't read, it's their fault. Well, more than that. Britain still, I mean, ostensibly Egypt had its independence at this stage. But in matter of fact, Britain ran it commercially and militarily and politically. They had 10,000 troops in there, supposedly just protecting the Suez Canal, but in reality, it was just a form of gumboat diplomacy. Uh, they ran you know, the show. Yeah, you do what we want or we've got a big fucking army, modern army, that can just come in and get rid of you at any time. Um, they dim- they dominated the region uh, and with the support of the US, by the way. Even though the US wanted to end the British Empire, uh, during World War Two, they were willing to support... Uh, particularly strategic places that the Brits controlled. And and the Suez Canal was one of those, as we've explained in length uh, recently on the Bullshit Fielder. The Suez Canal, which is this little canal, funnily enough, that basically (laughs) connects the Mediterranean down to the Indian Ocean, um, was very important transport for commercial and military uh, ships it mm-hmm. basically prevented you from having to go all the way around fucking Africa. Now, it's very important during the war. And uh, Egypt was touch and go. No one really was confident which way the Egyptian government would fall if they generally were independent. So the Americans were happy at this stage to have the British there uh, controlling them. Of course, they kind of mm-hmm. conspire with the Egyptians to kick the British out um, 10 years later. But uh, at this point in time, Egypt is effectively uh, a British-controlled puppet state. And yet Churchill brings up Egypt as an example of corrupt elections. (laughs) I'm surprised Stalin didn't go, well, whose fucking fault is that, really? Like, you're you're telling me you care about free elections in Poland while you have 10,000 troops in Egypt. How does this middle finger... Sound to you? Can I can I turn it up? Um, like the arrogance got a twin. and no. stupidity of Churchill really boggles my mind that he would bring that up as a bad example, right. you know. But he's probably winging it. He's probably still trying to get over the shock, and he's probably just winging it 
yeah. trying to come up with a barrier or something. Yeah. And he drank 17 buckets of champagne the night before <laughs> and hadn't had breakfast. So. <laughs> well, he had orange juice, but that was probably laced too. But that's just my point is that like Churchill is winging it. You're right. Struggling to get an argument. And that's a huge fucking blunder. So even Churchill yeah. can blunder uh, with the best of them under, uh, under certain circumstances. So uh, <laughs> it goes on. It gets better. So anyway, Churchill starts to backtrack from the whole Egypt thing. Just says, look, I just need to be able to tell Parliament that the elections will be free and fair. Now, as we've talked about, you know, throughout this whole thing, keeping him just to remind people, Churchill's concern with Poland is only that he, because there's got an election that's coming up in England and he needs to be able to say that, he has fought for free and fair elections for the Polish people because it was Hitler's invasion of Poland, which was the reason the British got involved in the war in the first place. And he mm-hmm. has to, if he doesn't come out of it saying, listen, we've, it was all for good cause, Poland right. now is free and fair elections, the, the opposition, the media are going to use it against him. him. And the the government in exile, the Polish government in exile, is fucking in the middle of London. They're going to cause a furor. So he doesn't really give a shit. And in fact, he even says, and during this conversation, I do not care care much about the Poles myself. He fucking even said that in the conversation, according to the record. To which Stalin starts defending the Poles. Oh, God. Stalin says, There are some very good people among the Poles. They are good fighters. Of course, they fight amongst themselves, too. I think on both sides, there are non-fascist and anti-fascist elements. So, (laughs) Churchill starts bitching about the Poles. I don't like the Poles. I don't care. And I don't fucking care. Stalin, who's trying to control their future government, comes to their defense. It's all topsy turvy world, man. It's yeah. it's crazy. But see, that's Any- that's why you can't that's why you can't get over on Stalin because no matter what's going on, he's able to turn it and make himself look like the good like the good guy, the moderate in the room. But now Churchill keeps going and digs himself into a bigger hole. He says he doesn't like this division of political parties into fascist and anti-fascist camps, which is mm. something that the Soviets were pushing for in the wording out of Yola about Poland, that there would that there would be representation of all political parties except the fascists. Now, Churchill's probably thinking about the British-backed fascist government in Greece that right. he is supporting. So, you know, the, the, they don't, this hard right-wing pro-monarchical government that we've talked about in earlier episodes. So <clears throat> he says, Any, anybody can call anybody anything. We prefer the terminology democratic parties. Mm. So Churchill's defending fascism and <laughs> bitching about the Poles. Stalin's defending the It's like it's so fucking free it's for like all, face off. man. They've switched, fa- they've switched faces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, Churchill then asks if uh, Mikulajic, the... Um, uh, Mikulajic, I think, the, the, the leader of the exile, government in exile 
would be able to go back to Poland and organise his party for the election. Stalin says, sure, he's a member of a non-fascist party, so <laughs> he has right to take part in the election. Um, and then Roosevelt speaks up. Uh, he says... <laughs> which, oh, I know this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had this quote memorized because I remember John Lithgow in the uh, When Lions Roared, that video I sent you on oh. YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have something to contribute, so let's go with it. That's good. No, just no, just uh, FDR bits up and he goes, "I want this election in Poland to be the first one beyond question. I should, I sh- it should be like Caesar's wife. I did not know her, but they said she was pure. Don't ask me why. I just memorized that from John Lithgow. Yeah, who played FDR? Now, people who listen to our old Julius Caesar show will know the reference. Caesar's wife must be beyond suspicion. That was the mm-hmm. justification Caesar used to divorce <laughs> his uh, wife when there was accusations that she was fucking around on the <laughs> side with... Who was she fucking with? Oh, know. God. What was his name? Oh, my God. Cure... No. The guy that broke into the Bonadilla yeah. just as a woman. Yeah. Oh, shit. What the fuck? M or C? What's? Give me a letter. Give me something. It's a game show. I can't remember. It's... it's uh, oh, shit. Yeah, I'm trying... I know. It's almost like Curio, but not Curio. <clears throat> he was the guy that uh, was, was eventually killed, but he faced off against Milo. There was Milo yeah. and... Oh, my God. K- K- Milo and uh, Clodius. Boom. Clodius. Clodius. There we go. <laughs> Finally we came go. to me. Yeah, Clodius, yeah. dressed as a woman and snuck into the just, Bonadea. Just the uh, idea that Caesar's wife, just the hint, and he yeah. had to divorce her. Shit. Things have so, changed a lot. FDR, who knows his, he's listened to the show, obviously. He <laughs> was a big fan. The elections must be above criticism like Caesar's wife. Stalin retorts they said that about her but in fact she had her sins mm-hmm. damn basically saying uh, i think uh look the polish people aren't that pure um right. you you can say it's going to be a free election but uh it's going to be corrupt yes. whether or not and it's going to be and it's going to be mine well he's i think he's saying look even if we all completely stood out of the way and did nothing it would still be uh, a corrupt election uh keeping in mind the the polish had uh you know they like the rest of these guys the polish weren't saints themselves yes they had been oppressed but i remember we talked about the uh military dictatorship that poland had been under when they did have their freedom for a while uh, mm-hmm. before the Nazis, uh, the guy who liked Hitler, who was the military dictator of Poland, who was good friends with Hitler early on and Hitler's uh, chancellorship. So Stalin had a, a very <laughs> cynical view of the Poles, as did Churchill and Roosevelt. None of them liked right. the Poles. It's the press. It's the propaganda. It's the spin that they had to take home. That, that's right. Stalin didn't, but... Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> but Churchill and Roosevelt needed to worry about how it played, the optics of right, how they came right. out of this. Um, anyway, um, so this discussion about how the Polish elections would work was again 
referred to the foreign ministers for the meeting the next day. Jeez. Which is the last day, basically, of um, the the, the Yalta conference. conference. Yeah, yeah. So the foreign ministers met again the next day. They talked, amongst other things, about Poland. Uh, Still didn't go well. The Americans pushed for a while for the elections to be monitored by Western ambassadors, which is what they had sort of agreed to with the British. And then on the on February 10th at the foreign minister's meeting, the Americans withdrew that request as well. (laughs) (laughs) Like, they're just like, oh, fuck it. Like, we're done. Let's go home. (laughs) We're over it. Um, We got what we wanted. Seriously, who who cares about Poland? We'll just take our, we'll take our hits when we get home with the press and the opposition. We'll make a play. We'll say, yeah, 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 but we got the big things. Seriously, right. fu- fuck the polls, really. Um, I'm tired of the mince pies. I'm tired of all the vodka and the and the bread or whatever. Let's just get the fuck out of here. Yeah, you try and eat white fish and caviar <laughs> and fucking vodka for breakfast every day. Like, you know, see how long you can last. Now, Churchill, when he finds out that the Americans have backed down on this, is oh. even more pissed. Eden said to him, Americans gave us no warning, and I don't propose to agree to their action. Eden, of course, representing Britain at the foreign minister's meeting. Certainly do not agree, was Churchill's note back to him. So he's going to fight this out with or without the Americans. Damn. And there are the ones in the group. Yeah. Now, Roosevelt wrote to Stetty around about this time, if the statement of this fact in the agreement irritates the Russians... He's talking about the Western ambassadors monitoring the elections. We can mm-hmm. drop the statement, but they must understand our firm determination that the ambassadors will observe and report on the elections in any case. Ooh. So they won't be monitoring it officially, but they will be <laughs> observing and reporting. Standing around smoking cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, what okay. did you think? Yeah, no, I don't think it was free, but, you know, fuck it. <laughs> or fair. Uh, <clears throat> Now, meanwhile, the Soviets, <laughs> fucking love this, as they see the Americans being prepared to give up all of these things, they double down on what they want. Oh, shit. Oh, boom. Like, this is <laughs> this is negotiating 101. When it's getting to the last, the 12th hour of the negotiation, you can see that your opposition is busting to go to the toilet. They're checking their watch every 30 seconds. They're hungry. They're drunk. They're hungover. Their wife, their wife is standing in the corner tapping her foot and tapping her watch with this look on her face. You know you've, you've got your opposition on the ropes. You go hard, man, and that's what the Soviets right. did. The Soviets now want something else. Oh, fuck. They want the Americans and the British to give diplomatic recognition to the Lublin government, the Polish Ooh. government in Warsaw. Something that they've the, the Britons and the Americans, uh, British and the Americans have refused to do because they right. obviously believe they're an illegitimate government. Soviets are now like, well, look, you want us to agree to all this other stuff? We need this. Damn. So this forces Churchill to go and have a private meeting 
with Stalin and Molotov. Um, now, he says, he opens to Stalin that he has come to discuss a highly unpleasant matter. And Stalin says, Oh, uh, this is about the Western ambassadors, uh, the elections. Um, yeah, you can have that. I don't care. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. No problem. And Churchill's like, oh, well, um, <laughs> oh, well then, um, okay. Um, Victory. One, very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, this is like classic negotiating 101. You ask for a whole bunch of stuff that, A, you don't expect to get, and, B, you're willing to give up. So Stalin, like, is just the master at this. You know, he doesn't really give a shit. You're going to monitor it. You're not going to monitor it. I don't give a fuck. I've got yeah. the army that's in yeah, there. Ar- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Possession. What are you going to do? You're not happy with how it turns out? Fucking who cares, right? So Take it to the, take it to the UN. Oh, I have veto yeah. power. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> oh. So anyway, um, he goes, yeah, sure. Okay, have it. I don't care. You know, doesn't matter. So Churchill's very here. So they turn up to the plenary session late that day. Churchill whispers to FDR, I believe that I have succeeded in retrieving the situation. <laughs> so, so fucking pompous. Um, yeah. So the uh, final draft of their declaration on Poland, which gets approved that day, basically gave the Soviets pretty much everything they wanted. It was um, fairly loosely worded, um, kind of reflected all of the tension that had happened in these discussions. Um, At Roosevelt's request, the uh, reference to the Lublin government, rather than being declared as the provisional government of Poland, which is what the Soviets Soviets wanted, which is the <laughs> diplomatic recognition that they are in fact the government, it was replaced with the provisional government, which is now functioning in Poland. Ah, mm. Soviets were happy with that. It's still the provisional government, okay? Right, um, but. The reference that the Allies wanted, the Brits and the Anglo-Americans wanted, that the new government would be fully representative was dropped. (laughs) Um, It said there was a reference to anti-fascist parties, uh, but it said anti-Nazi parties instead of anti-fascist uh, because Churchill didn't like anti-fascist in there because he liked fascist parties in Greece. You got to yeah. be careful with that, yeah. Yeah, so anti-Nazi parties. Um, yeah. Although, why there would be a Nazi party running <laughs> for government you. in Poland? Like, what? what? Or, or anywhere at this point, you think you yeah. got to think they're on their way out. Yeah, yeah. but you got to put something in there. Um, and uh, there was a statement on ambassadors would be there to monitor it or report. Uh, on the elections, as opposed to the original wording, which was to report on, to ensure free and unfettered elections. Now it just says they're going to be there to report on the elections. Yeah. So the wording that f- ends up in the final uh, declaration is very loose, very fluffy, and a lot of, ro- lot of wiggle room for Stalin yeah. on this, which That's is exactly all- what he wanted. From, from day one. Full circle, yeah. and now he's got it. 
And again, just to remind everyone, the reason he wants this isn't because he hates the polls, although I'm sure he does. There's a lot of history there. It's because they're on the border. It's been used as a a, a channel to invade Russia before several times. He wants to make sure it's a buffer zone. It's the same reason Mm -hmm. that he invaded Poland in 1939 when they signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Act. It wasn't just because he was a dick. It's because yeah. if, if the if the Red Army didn't go into Poland, the Nazis would have taken all of Poland anyway and gone right, right. up to the Russian border. The Red exactly. Army invaded Poland in thirty nine to prevent the Nazis from sitting on the Soviet border. Because as we know, Stalin knew that it was only a matter of time before the Nazis invaded uh, Russia. So anyway... So this is just, again, pragmatic politics here from Stalin's perspective. Does it suck for the Poles? Yes, but Stalin cares about his country, not the Poles. Exactly. Uh, Just like FDR and Churchill. So then they start talking about um, Poland's western border again, you know, going backwards and forwards about this. Roosevelt suggests that the final decision on the border should be postponed until there's a new Polish government that they should have consultations with. He also said he wants Churchill to draft the statement on the Western border. So they basically decide that uh, the new borders will be decided upon later after the new government is created. So again, that kind of is something that uh, doesn't get nailed down tightly at Yalta. It Uh, plays right into Stalin's hands. Exactly. Um, Molotov proposes that they add a sentence to return Poland to its ancient frontiers of East Prussia and on the Oder. And Roosevelt says, uh, how long ago did Poland have those frontiers? Molotov says, oh, very, very long time ago. (laughs) Roosevelt says, well, I hope Britain doesn't ask for the return of the United States on the same grounds. (laughs) Uh, Little dig. Stalin says, uh, there's a couple of oceans that would make that difficult. Um, but, uh, you know, in all, the, all in all, they're very careful, particularly the Americans are careful about avoiding responsibility for the delineation of the new borders. They want to push it onto somebody else's shoulders. They don't want to take right. responsibility for it, again, for purely political reasons. And they've done enough. Well, I think Roosevelt's felt he's done all he can do. He's not going to get any more. He doesn't want to take the blame for it politically. Right. But uh, at the end of the day, I think he's well aware they could stay there another month. Stalin's not going to give up. Like, he's not. And and there's there's only so much they can do. I mean, the, the man, you know that old saying, the man who controls the money controls no with the the gold the golden rule he who controls he controls the gold controls the rules it's the same i think we've used this example before but he who's got the man on the ground the army on the ground controls the lay of the land unless you're willing to go to war with them there's very little you can do in a negotiation like this yeah and the american public can't just like the british public cannot wait to have their men back it's been years let's bring him home stalin can just order his men to stay there forever because he is a dictator he cannot lose at this point. So why why give up? Yeah. Roosevelt had just reached the stage where he'd say, okay, it doesn't matter. That's it. We're not going to get any further. Let's let's draw a line in the sand here and, and move on. 
Churchill right. wanted to keep fighting for it, possibly because he believed he was in a weaker political position back home, um, mm-hmm. which, in fact, he was right about. So he he doesn't want to give up, but uh, basically he's got Stalin and the Americans against him here, so he's outvoted. Yeah. Um, Charles Boland, the American uh, interpreter, later wrote that uh, the agreement, the American agreement on on Poland, although not what the West had wanted, appeared to us with some doubts as acceptable. Yeah, that's, that's Harriman, a fair assumption. Yeah, ha- Harriman didn't agree. He later criticised Roosevelt saying that accepting Stalin's language, that instead of creating a new Polish government, the existing provisional government should be reorganised. He thought that was a mistake. Lord Moran, the British, um, believed that it was too late to worry about Poland, uh, that it, had all, it was all sort of going to um, just play out the way that Stalin wanted it to play out. He wrote in his diary, it was plain at Moscow last October that Stalin means to make Poland a Cossack outpost of Russia, and I'm sure he has not altered his intention here. Mm. When Admiral Admiral Leahy, who wasn't actually involved in the discussions because he was uh, a military man and chief of staff, but he wasn't involved in the um, political side of it, He told Roosevelt, Mr. President, this is so elastic that the Russians can stretch it all the way from Yalta to Washington without ever technically breaking it. Oh, God. Roosevelt replied, I know, Bill, I know, but it's the best I can do at this time. Wow. And that's That's true. All I've got. And and just like we said before, I mean, Stalin had spies. He knew everything. He knew their positions. He knew what he was going to go after at the beginning of this. He knew uh, what their arguments going to be. He knew what their goals were going to be. He knew what he was going to be willing to give up to get what he wanted. He saw everybody's hand the entire time. There can be not much surprise. It ended up the way it did. And obviously he played it like a master. I mean, again, he was a dictator. He was a monster. killed millions of his own people. But when it comes to this arena at Yalta, he was the master. They didn't stand a chance. Yeah. So that's the end of that. And we're nearly at the end of Yalta. Like, there's a bit more. We've got to cover the German side of things, Germany side of things. But that's it. Yalta's pretty much done, folks. Next episode, I think we will be done with Yalta. But don't take me on my no. word at that because who fucking knows? No. Um. <laughs> I got to read one more review. Uh, another Aussie, uh, Searching Drone, is the author of this one. I have listened to these two podcasters and their various podcasts over many series and thus years. I can't fault them. I am not the tennis umpire that was present in Vegas. But together, <laughs> I don't know, fault, tennis, not sure what. But together again and again and again, they do to history what an emetic does to an overdose of tranquilizers. Wow, that's some stretched analogy there, Searching Drone. <laughs> Look that one up, yeah. And this is the bit that gets me the most, particularly after this episode we just did. 
Ray Harris conjoins the reality of the extensive research he has done with the depth of thinking that he has heard about the issue somewhere. The other bloke is from Queensland. Regards, Searching Drone. I love you. What a backhanded compliment that was. <laughs> Thank you, Searching Drone. Send us an I'll email. I'll take a hand anytime. Yeah. Send us an email, email at thecobalt.com with your address, and we will thank you. Uh, we'll thank you or send him. Send you <laughs> a thank you. Fuck, it's end of hour three. <laughs> By the way, uh, that's it. Um, yeah. By the way, my email to you, Ray, said, uh, I think we start with the dinner on day four and go up to the end of the Polish negotiations so we stop just before Germany. Oh. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, my secretary's fired. I will get right mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel bad. I f- I'm sorry. I'll let you down. Mm-hmm. All right. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in. Peace. curtain has descended across the continent. Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. 